Good evening and welcome to our Bible study time. We are moving right along in our series entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. We are presently in part four of this study and each week I mention that just in case we have newcomers, uh, the notes and the recordings for all of these are available at our website at new-life-ministries.org. And again, we are in part four, and I believe we'll be picking it up on page 45, if you're following uh, in the notes by the pages. Let me just give a little bit of background again. Um, we are currently looking at the third step, or the third stage, in Israel's coming out of Egypt and beginning their journey into the Promised Land. And the title of this message is really borrowed from a scriptural context where it says God brought them out so that He could take them in. Two parts to this whole process. Taking them out of Egypt to take them in to the promised land. And by the way, my wife and I, we got tired of waiting, so this past weekend we went to Canaan, the promised land. Fauci's looking at me like I'm crazy. Uh, we went to a place in West Virginia called Canaan Valley. <laughs> so uh, it's the closest we could come to the land flowing with milk and honey, but uh, it was a wonderful time and uh, we really were blessed looking at all the signs there about Canaan and the land of Canaan and uh, we could only imagine being in the real land of Canaan. They came out through God's mighty outstretched arm and there are three parts that we've been studying. It was through the blood of the Passover lamb that they were initially released from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. But that wasn't the end of the story. Pharaoh came chasing after them. They needed a second deliverance at the Red Sea, where God told them, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his armies were destroyed. And we saw that's a beautiful picture for us of water baptism. And each one of these experiences that Israel had in their journey out of Egypt into the Promised Land, it corresponds to a spiritual reality, a spiritual experience that we now have in Christ. They killed a lamb and put the blood on their door. Now, Paul tells us, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Paul tells us they were baptized in the Red Sea, which means it's a picture of what happens to the believer when he or she is baptized in water. And now we've come to the third stage in them coming out of Egypt. This was a very lengthy portion of that process. They came to Mount Sinai. 
And we mentioned last time, they spent almost an entire year camped at Mount Sinai. And we've been going through a list of seven significant things that took place at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai represents for us as Christians a third and very important experience after our initial born-again salvation experience through the blood of Jesus, after our water baptism experience. Thirdly, we experience what is called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we learn some, some beautiful things about the baptism in the Holy Spirit that were foreshadowed here at Mount Sinai. The whole mountain was on fire. The glory of God covered the mountain. God came down and spoke face to face with them. And so many parallels between what happened at Mount Sinai and what happened on the day of Pentecost when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. Seven things we're working through that happened during this year-long stay at Mount Sinai. Let me run through the list again, and we are actually finishing the third one of these seven points. Number one, it was at Mount Sinai that God revealed his law. Moses went up into the mountain. He came down with the two tablets of stone called the, the covenant law. And it was there that God entered into this covenant with Israel, and he began to call them my people. There were many other nations on the earth, but Israel has now become God's covenant people. That didn't happen in Egypt. It didn't happen in the Red Sea. It happened at Mount Sinai. Secondly, we saw that God brought Israel into a very unique and intimate relationship with himself, like marriage. And we saw in Jeremiah and other places, he actually became a husband to them at Mount Sinai. So there's this intimate, holy matrimony kind of a relationship between God and his people that is forged at Mount Sinai. And the third point, and this is where we're going to continue in a moment, God sought for a temple where he could dwell. He said, let them make me a sanctuary, a place where I can dwell and live in the midst of them. Fourthly, God revealed his glory on Mount Sinai. It was something visible. Everyone could see the glory of God over that mountain. Fifthly, and I can't wait till we get to this one, because this one's really powerful. At Mount Sinai, God took what is estimated to be about two and a half million slaves. That's all they had known for 400 years. Slavery. He took two and a half million slaves and organized them and united them into one body, placing them in ranks. They had a specific marching order. And when they left Mount Sinai, they left not as a bunch of slaves, they left as a mighty army, organized by God himself. Sixthly, and this one's very important too, at Mount Sinai, God established 
a kingdom of priests. A, a royal priesthood was established there at Mount Sinai. And then finally, we'll see that at Mount Sinai, God prepared the people to begin their march into the promised land, to possess their inheritance. Now, let's pick it up where we left off in this third point. God revealed to the children of Israel a plan for a temple where he could dwell in their midst. This was to be a mobile temple. It was really a big tent. It was a tent that they could erect and then take down and carry it from place to place. And it would actually end up being about 40 years that this portable tent was set up and taken down as the children of Israel traveled through the wilderness. And this was, as I mentioned, to be God's dwelling place right in the midst of the people. Just to recap again, there at Mount Sinai, we read in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, these words from the Lord, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Some Bibles say, let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Either one, I think, is accurate. Make a holy place, a sanctuary, so that I can dwell among them. God is holy. He can only dwell in a holy place, in a sanctuary. So let them make a sanctuary so I can dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God took Moses up into Mount Sinai, not just to give him the two tablets of stone with the law and the covenant on them, God revealed to Moses this elaborate plan for a tabernacle. All of the measurements, all the materials, all of the details, and this is another whole study in itself that we could spend weeks and weeks on. We won't do it now. But the study of the tabernacle itself is an amazing study that shows you the whole plan of salvation and many, many other things. And approximately 50 chapters of the Old Testament are devoted to this revelation of the tabernacle of Moses. And we'll talk just a little bit about the details. We'll save the details for another time. But we saw last time, as you read further on in Exodus, and basically Exodus 25 through the end of Exodus, chapter 40, is all devoted to, chapter after chapter, the details of how this sanctuary was to be built. The materials, who was to be involved, how it was to be set up and taken down, who was to carry the different parts of the tabernacle, etc. And we saw last time that it was to be a joint effort. And it was made out of the free will offerings of the Israelites. Gold, silver, bronze. And we also explained last time 
These were poor slaves, 400 years of slavery in Egypt, but we saw when they came out of Egypt, they were extremely wealthy because they spoiled the Egyptians. The Egyptians gave them gold, silver, bronze, expensive garments, dyes, spices, all sorts of things that they brought with them when they came out of Egypt. And then God says, let them bring me a free will offering of their gold, silver, bronze, etc. And those were to be the materials for the building of this tabernacle. Um, I think it's very important to note that the place where God wants to dwell, it's made out of free will offerings. God doesn't want to force people to do anything. He wants free will offerings. He wants people to love Him of their own volition. He wants people to dedicate their lives to Him of their own volition. And so, in the type and shadow of the Old Testament, we see a clear picture looking forward to the temple God wants to dwell in now, and we'll get much more into that in a minute. We saw that their response to God's call was overwhelming. They actually had to be stopped. They were bringing so much gold, silver, bronze, and other stuff that God finally had to intervene and say, okay, stop, we have enough. Don't bring any more. And finally, after almost a year of work, this was a very elaborate tabernacle. After almost a year of work, the whole thing was finally completed. And when Moses finished setting up the last peg, the last curtain of the tabernacle, we saw in Exodus 40, the last chapter of Exodus, uh, and I'm just going to read this part, then, that's a key word, then, after Moses finished the work, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night. And let me call to your remembrance, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul not only referred to them being baptized in the Red Sea, he says, and I'm reading again from 1 Corinthians 10, uh, starting with verse 1, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Interestingly, Paul refers to two different baptisms for the Israelites. You'll never find the word baptism in Exodus. That's a revelation that God gave Paul. They were baptized in the cloud, and they were baptized in the sea. Corresponds to two baptisms that are mentioned in the New Testament. Baptism in water, and baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's amazing how these things all tie together. But, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, it talks about 
foundations for our Christian life. And that's another whole study we could do at a later date. But it talks about repentance. It talks about faith. And then it lists baptisms with an S at the end, plural. Repentance, faith, baptisms. And then it mentions laying on of hands and other things. Why is it baptisms? Because there are two baptisms mentioned repeatedly in the New Testament, both of which are important. They're separate and distinct experiences. And we went through this last time. Just because a person receives Christ as their Savior does not mean they've got the whole package. Throughout the book of Acts, you see these three separate and distinct experiences. Born again, born of water, born of the Spirit. Born again, baptized in water, and then baptized in the Holy Spirit. Probably the clearest uh, one scripture that shows they're not one and the same is found in Acts chapter 8 when the gospel was first taken to Samaria. Philip went down to Samaria, he preached the gospel, demons were coming out of people, multitudes were getting saved, and many, many people were baptized in water. But the scripture there is crystal clear. They had to call for the apostles, John and Peter, to come down from Jerusalem to pray for these Samaritans to be filled with the Holy Spirit because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. It's very clear. They were saved, they had been delivered, they had been baptized in water, but they had not yet received or been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter and John went down from Jerusalem, laid hands on them, and they all received the Holy Spirit. So, baptisms is even seen in this Old Testament picture. They were baptized in the Red Sea, and then at Mount Sinai, they were baptized in the cloud of God's glory. The cloud covered the tent, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Note those words, filled the tabernacle. So, we began to look at this last time, and we're going to launch from here. In the New Testament, we don't need gold and silver and boards and curtains. Now we need people. Because God wants to fill living stones with His glory. We become the temple of God. And just as Moses' tabernacle was filled with the glory of God, so the believer in Christ, when he's baptized in the Holy Spirit, he is filled with the glory of God. What an amazing thing. God's Spirit literally comes to take up permanent, note that word, permanent residence in us through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Let me reread a couple of passages that we finished with last time, and then we're going to launch right into some new stuff here. 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 both make mention of the fact that our body 
now becomes God's temple through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and God's Spirit is now dwelling in the temple of our body. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. I'm racing through these because this is review. We've already done this in last week's session, but it's important to move ahead into the new things we want to look at. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Hopefully we do all know that, but that's why Paul starts this section with those words. Don't you know? Christians need to know about this. A, if you've already received the Holy Spirit, know that you are God's temple. If you've not been filled with the Spirit of God, know that He wants to. And He wants to make you His temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Same words. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And then the words of Jesus. Jesus often spoke about the coming counselor, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, especially in the Gospel of John uh, chapter 14, 15, and 16. We're just looking at one of those for now in John 14, starting with verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, your Bible may say counselor, to help you and be with you forever. Underline that word, forever. This isn't a temporary experience. Oh, praise God, 35 years ago I was at a camp meeting and God gave me the Holy Ghost and I spoke in tongues that night. Haven't done it since, but man, it was a glorious experience. That's not what this is about. Holy Spirit came to be with you forever. And I can testify, He's been with me for 40 years, and I haven't always done the best on my part, but He never left me. Holy Spirit took up permanent residence inside Wayne Pratt's body, and He's still there tonight, praise God, to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept Him, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you, and will be, future tense, remember, Jesus is still on earth now, He hasn't been glorified, He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, and I believe he's talking about the day of Pentecost, when it actually happened, on that day, 
you will realize that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Now, we want to look at this on two different levels. Through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, individually, each one of us, as we've just seen, becomes the temple for God. We become a little temple for the Holy Spirit. But there's a bigger picture. Corporately, God takes every Spirit-baptized believer from around the world and unites them into one big temple. This is very important, and I want to go through this carefully. One temple. Not the New Life Ministries temple, or the 15th Baptist temple, or the First Assembly of God temple. One temple. God has one temple. Jesus has one body. There's one true church. The Holy Spirit comes not only to dwell in each one of us as a little temple, but to build all of us together into one habitation for God. On the day of Pentecost, the church was born. Most Bible teachers agree to that fact. The birthday of the church is the day of Pentecost. That's when the church first began to form. It's interesting, you can scour the four Gospels, and you can even do a search if you have a concordance. (coughs) Strangely, the word church only appears twice in all four Gospels. You would think there'd be more in the Gospels about church. No, it's not there, because the church hadn't formed yet. You're like, wait a minute, Jesus had been on the earth three and a half years. Didn't they start a church? No. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matter of fact, it's in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm quoting one of them. That's one of only two references. Both are found in Matthew's Gospel to the church. And it's always in the future. Hadn't happened yet. Church was formed on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and filled those 120 believers. And just as in the case of Moses, with the tabernacle that was built at Mount Sinai, this was a joint effort. Everyone was involved in building that tabernacle at Mount Sinai. And God wants everyone involved in building this thing called the church. Furthermore, Moses' tabernacle was made only from willing offerings, free will offerings. Likewise, this temple that God is constructing now is made only from free will offerings. People who freely offer their lives, their gifts, their talents, their time, their resources back to God. The willing offering in Moses' case, it was both materials and in some cases it was skills. They needed skilled craftsmen to help 
take all these materials and build the tabernacle. The willing offerings in the New Testament are the same way. It's both skills, gifts, talents, as well as materials. And one of the things God opened my eyes two years ago is whatever the children of Israel brought with them out of Egypt, it was valuable when and only when they dedicated it to God. Listen to me carefully here, because this is a profound revelation. I'm not saying I'm profound, but it's a profound revelation from the Scriptures. Whatever they brought with them out of Egypt, it was no accident that they had that in their hands. God put that gold, silver, bronze, and all those other materials into their hands. And I mentioned last time, I personally believe it was back pay for all the 400 years they worked as slaves. God is just. He knows how to pay us. And man and the world may not uh, give us a good deal, but God always pays us for whatever we do for Him. Here's my point. Whatever they brought with them out of Egypt, it was valuable and when it was dedicated to God, it was actually what the temple was built out of. You may have certain gifts, or natural talents, skills, things you learned when you were an unsaved person living in Egypt, living in the world. And maybe you think, well now that I'm a Christian, all that needs to be discarded. Oh no! It's no accident that you learned whatever you learned, you developed whatever skills you developed before you were saved. God was overseeing all that. He knew what He was doing, and He saved you right at the right time, and whatever happened before that can be extremely valuable when you dedicate it to the Lord. So, when you come to Christ, all that you are, all of your education, all of your gifts, all of your talents, all of your skills, whatever it was that you did well, even when you were in the world, give it to God now, consecrate it to the Lord, bring it to Him as your free will offering, and see what God will do with it. You might be amazed at how He can take those talents, skills, things that you learned in the world as an unbeliever, you might be amazed at how he wants to use them in his church and in his kingdom now. So, it was a joint effort, and it was made from free will offerings, both in Moses' day and from the day of Pentecost onwards. <clears throat> now, we come to a very important passage, which I believe we read at the very end last time, but I want to take some more time with it because I think this is central to our discussion about God's purpose, not only to make each one of us a temple for the Holy Spirit, that's good, but we could all be running around doing our own thing, you know, I've got God inside me, I can do whatever the Holy Spirit tells me to do, kind of a thing. Lone Ranger Christians, I call them. But in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, 
this pretty much shoots that Lone Ranger idea out the window. From verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now pause for a minute. Notice he's using the metaphor of a building. You have words here, foundation, chief cornerstone, built. These are all words that you would use talking about constructing some kind of a house or a building. Built on the foundation with Christ the chief cornerstone. Okay, follow along here, verse 21. In Him, in Christ, the whole building. We have to ask, what building is He talking about here? Well, I think we'll see. In Him, the whole building is joined together. Not three buildings, not ten buildings, not a hundred buildings, one building. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become, and here it comes, a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple. Let them make me a sanctuary. That's Exodus 25. We're now in the New Testament. Paul's using almost the same language. We need to build a holy temple for the Lord. But actually, we're not doing it. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And here's the clincher. Verse 22. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So not only is each one of us a temple of the Holy Spirit, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is now bringing all those little temples, all those living stones, as Peter calls them, in 1 Peter, together, building them together to become a holy temple, to become a dwelling in which God lives. Some translations call it a habitation for God. So, this is a whole different thing now. Through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is building the temple of God the dwelling place of God. And this is actually going to be His eternal dwelling place. That's mind-blowing. And we'll talk more about that later on. But, obviously, God didn't bring the children of Israel to Mount Sinai just to have a one-year vacation and look at the fireworks on top of the mountain. He had some very serious business He wanted to do with these people at Mount Sinai culminating in the construction 
of this temple, this dwelling place where God's glory could come and fill it. Likewise, on the day of Pentecost, God didn't just want to baptize these people with the Holy Spirit so they could talk in tongues for a couple hours and then all go home and be done with it. Something supernatural began to happen there. The church was born. God began to build all of these disciples and all of the future disciples who would be filled with the Holy Spirit, build them together into one holy temple for the Lord, where God could dwell by His Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not real familiar with Acts chapter 2, I would recommend reading and studying over the whole chapter. That's where uh, you read about the day of Pentecost. But after that initial experience, we see how Peter stands up and preaches. 3,000 people get converted in that first day of the church. But I want you to notice some other significant things that start happening on that very first day after the Holy Spirit is poured out. And we pick it up later on in Acts chapter 2 from verse 41 to 47. And I want you to notice how just like in the Old Testament, this from the very beginning was meant to be a joint effort. The Holy Spirit is already building them together, joining them together. Remember those words again from Ephesians, in Him the whole building is joined together to become a holy temple in the Lord. Acts 2 from verse 41. Those who accepted His message, that's Peter's message, were baptized. And remember, they were cut to the heart after they heard Peter's preaching, and they ran to him saying, what should we do? And he already had his answer prepared for them. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Same three things we've been talking about. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, they listened to him. Those who accepted his message, they were baptized. It's logical. They asked, what should we do? He said, repent. They did that. What's next? Take baptism. They did that. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and, underline this, to fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the coming together, to the koinonia, community, togetherness, being joined together, built together, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Note very carefully the next verse, verse 44. 
all, you know I love that word, all the believers were together. They were physically together. They weren't all in their separate homes watching Christian TV. They were all together and had everything in common. That's fellowship. That's koinonia. Sharing together. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together. Notice that. They continued to meet together. This is why later on the writer of Hebrews exhorts the Christians, don't forsake meeting together. It's a very important part of our Christianity. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, the church has been given a bad name. A lot of people have a very warped idea of the church. And they're afraid even to go to church. They're afraid that all they're going to do is beg them for their money and beat on them and thump them and condemn them and make them feel worse than they felt when they came in. That's sad. And we need to represent the church in the proper way. And I'll tell you one thing. Many, many people who have never even stepped foot in a church, and when you invite them, they'll make a million excuses not to come. The very thing that they're longing for, that church should be offering them, they're afraid to go and find out. What they're missing is fellowship, this sense of belonging, togetherness, feeling like they're a part of something. That's why so many young people are joining gangs now. They don't have a proper home. Most of them don't even have a father at home. And because they have no father, they don't feel like they're a part of anything. They find they can feel like they're a part of something in a gang. And so they join a gang. And they get sucked into that whole lifestyle of crime and violence and murder and drugs and all the rest. But what people are really longing for is this very thing. Togetherness, fellowship, and a sense of belonging. Well, God knew that. That's why He invented the church. The church is all about working together, praying together, eating together, worshiping together, doing everything as a body. Why? Because the baptism in the Holy Spirit was for that purpose, to bring this whole building together into one holy temple where God can dwell. You read a little further in Acts, you see the same thing over and over again. Acts chapter 4, 
starting at verse 31. They prayed together in the early church. We like to pray together. Now, we do it sometimes over the phone, but I think everybody would admit it's nicer when we're really together in one room praying and getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, they certainly knew that in the early church. After they prayed, the place, notice that, (laughs) the place where they were meeting was shaken. They all met together in one place to pray. And that place was literally shaken, just like Mount Sinai was shaken when the Holy Spirit came upon it. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is again. All filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now pause for a minute. I'm going to tell you something. This is possible only through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Democrats can't do it. Republicans can't do it. Community organizing groups can't do it. No other religion, no other philosophy can do it. They will all fail, and we're seeing that on our nightly news. It has all failed to bring about this kind of unity between, what does it say? All. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and all the believers were one in heart and mind. National distinctions are dissolved. Skin color becomes invisible. All these so-called racial differences, they fly out the window when the Holy Spirit comes. And He can make white, black, red, yellow, Americans, Canadians, Sri Lankans, Guyanese, Indians, Jamaicans, all one through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. (laughs) The next verse has everything to do with what we just read. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you something. When we allow the Holy Spirit to invade our lives the way these early disciples did, we're going to see great power coming upon the church. If we refuse to let that happen, we're going to keep wondering where the power went. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, 
brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Man, these people took this thing seriously. They really were becoming one body, one church, one temple. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, hear what Paul says. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? There's that same word, when you come together. He doesn't say if you come together. He says when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So that the church may be built up. Notice the parallels again between this and the tabernacle of Moses. Everyone was to come with their little offering. Everyone was involved. Everyone had to be a part of building this tabernacle. It was a joint, free will effort. Paul says it's the same deal with the church. When you come together, everyone is to participate. Everyone has something to offer. Each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. You know, when we have a group of spirit-baptized believers, and everyone is flowing in their gift, everyone is led by the Spirit, everyone is moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, when all of those people come together, it's like an explosion. And that's the way church is supposed to be. Each one has something to contribute. Maybe a hymn, maybe a word of instruction, maybe a revelation, a dream, a vision, a tongue, or an interpretation. And this isn't for people to show off Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. There's that word again, built. Built by the Holy Spirit. Now, just as the cloud of God's glory filled the tabernacle at Mount Sinai and covered it, two different things happened. God filled the tabernacle with His glory and He covered it. It was on top of the tabernacle, everyone could see it from all around. Even non-Israelites could see that cloud sitting on top of the tabernacle. Just as that cloud came upon Moses' tabernacle, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, God immerses us into His glory, into the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism means. It doesn't mean a little sprinkling. It doesn't mean a couple of drops of water. It means get into the water. And baptism in the Holy Spirit doesn't mean, oh, I got a little touch of the Holy Spirit 45 years ago. No, 
It means you've been immersed into the Spirit of God, baptized into God's cloud. And we already read those verses. We don't need to read them again from 1 Corinthians 10. They were baptized in the cloud and baptized in the sea. Speaking about the Israelites in the Old Testament, you and I have been baptized in water and baptized in the Spirit. There's one last thing I want to conclude with here. When that cloud came upon the tabernacle, we saw that from then on, that was to be their guidance system. That was their GPS. Whenever the cloud moved, they were to move. When the cloud remained stationary, they stayed parked. They didn't go anywhere. Maybe for a day, maybe for a week, or maybe even for almost a year. They stayed in one place until the cloud moved. It's a beautiful picture. If you can get this into your spirit, the cloud is a picture of the Holy Spirit. We are also being led by a cloud. He's called the Holy Spirit. And as many as are led by the Spirit, they're called the children or the sons of God. Look at that scripture in Romans 8, verse 14. Romans 8, verse 14. And this applies to each one of us individually, and it applies to the whole church also. We need to pray earnestly in these last days. There is so much confusion in the world. God has to unite His church so that with one voice, with one spirit, we begin to march and move forward as a mighty army, led not by our own opinions, not by our own culture, or by our own likes or dislikes, led by the Spirit of the living God. Romans 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now, he's not saying that if you've been born again, and maybe you've not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit, he's not saying you're not a child of God. That's not what Paul's trying to do here. What he's saying, and some Bibles actually translate it, sons of God, indicating this is speaking about a level of maturity. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, they're going on in their life as a child of God. If, if you and I no longer want to be led by the Spirit, I don't think there's a whole lot of hope for us. Uh, I'm being very honest. Um, the Holy Spirit is what the church is all about. The Holy Spirit is what Christianity is all about. How in the world can you have Christianity without the Holy Spirit? Christ, the word Christ, means anointed. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Christians are anointed ones, those who are following the anointed one. So, if we don't have the anointing in our lives, and we're not being led by the anointing, um, how, in reality, can we truly be Christians? Okay, led by the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. 
Paul says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit. Different way of expressing the same thing. Being led by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are... that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't care what the modern preachers are telling us. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because people who continue in these lifestyles if you're following what Paul is saying here, they're not being led by the Spirit. They're being led by the flesh. And if they're being led by the flesh, they're never going to grow, they're never going to attain the life that's necessary to inherit the kingdom of God. So, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. People who continue to live that kind of a life, they're obviously either not filled with the Holy Spirit, or they're not listening to the Holy Spirit, and they're not letting the Holy Spirit lead them, because the Holy Spirit comes to lead us out of that long laundry list of sins. And by the way, I know uh, we're going a little bit over our time here, but some time ago the Lord showed me, if you study this list of what are commonly referred to as the works of the flesh, or the acts of the flesh, there are kind of like two bookends and something in between the two bookends. He starts off with really gross kinds of sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. I mean, most Christians would agree those are bad stuff. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. That's bad stuff. Then go down toward the end. There's some more bad stuff. Drunkenness. Orgies. And the like. But then there are a number of things in between that we kind of excuse. And I mean, every church has them. And I mean, after all, we're all human. So we're all going to have a little bit of this stuff lingering on in our lives. Like what? Hatred. Discord. Jealousy, 
fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. These aren't what we would call, you know, real serious sins. These are more like problems in relationships with other people. Discord, factions, a little bit of jealousy here. Hey, come on, Pastor, everybody has a little bit of selfish ambition, some envy. And one day I was looking at this list and I realized the middle part is really what destroys most churches. I can't even begin to tell you how many churches I know of that have been split and split and split and split and the splits split and the splits of the splits split and they keep splitting. Why? Because of hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, ambition. Oh, I want to be the top dog here. I can't be top dog. Well, I'm going to split the church and take half of the people with me. And I'm going to start a new church down the street. Dissensions, disagreements, factions, and envy. Those are also works of the flesh. And those who do such things, let me read this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. We need to do some serious soul searching and make sure we're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us. This isn't just talking about, oh, the Holy Spirit's leading me to move to Colorado. Okay, great. Is the Holy Spirit also leading you to repent of your hatred, of your racism, of your discord, of your jealousy, of your factions, of your selfish ambition? Oh, don't even get me started on that one. Lot of selfish ambition amongst ministers. Oh, I want to be number one. I want to be president, senior pastor. Whoopee. We can be senior pastor and go to hell if we're not careful. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Man, I feel an anointing tonight. I could go on for two more hours. I won't. But you better study these verses. Because Paul is dead serious here. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. He comes into a mess, and his job is to make it holy. And if we're listening to the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit the Spirit of God is going to start to put His finger on these things in our lives. And we still got stuff, all of us, we still got stuff in this list that we need to deal with. And no doubt the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, speaking to me about some of this stuff, but what are we doing about it? Led by the Spirit. And then he goes on. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit, you're going to start to see this kind of fruit coming forth, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, you learn how to put up with other people, <laughs> kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, to bring all this to a close, one of the great purposes for the baptism in the Holy Spirit is to join all of us together as one holy temple where God can dwell. Each one of us is a little temple. Holy Spirit has now taken up residence in each baptized believer, but the Holy Spirit wants to go beyond that and begin to unite all of us together with other Spirit-baptized Christians. I've had this experience many, many times, especially on the mission field. I may be in a foreign country. I can't even speak the language. But as soon as I meet someone, I feel a joining with them. It has nothing to do with their nationality, their skin color, their food, or their language. It's a spiritual bond that the Holy Spirit wants to form. Let's listen to the Holy Spirit. Let's obey the Holy Spirit. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to lead us, both in our individual lives and corporately as His church and as His body. And one other thing I want to point out, and we're not going to go back and read it, but if you reread that portion of Numbers 9, where it goes into great detail about how whenever the cloud moved, they moved. Whenever the cloud stopped, they had to stop. Very key phrase you find in that whole discussion. Whenever the cloud moved or remained, it says the Israelites would either encamp or set out, and I'm quoting, at the Lord's command. At the Lord's command. Well, God didn't say anything. The cloud moved. But it's synonymous with God issuing a command. Because whenever the cloud moved, that was God's command. So, in other words, that cloud over the tabernacle was a visible manifestation of God himself directing his people. And likewise, the Holy Spirit inside each one of us, and the Holy Spirit in the church. He may or may not give an audible command, but the Holy Spirit moves, and those who are in sync with the Holy Spirit, they automatically obey the Lord's command. Those who are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. They are the children of God. Next time we're going to continue with the fourth thing that happened at Mount Sinai, and it ties right in, right in with this one, but we're going to zero in specifically on the glory of God. God revealed His glory to the people there at Mount Sinai. Let us pray. 
Father, we're overwhelmed with the things that you have purposed and planned to do in our lives now. Lord, through the blood of Jesus, you delivered us from the bondage of sin. That alone gives us enough cause to praise and worship for all of eternity. But we're realizing there's much, much more to your plan. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You're bringing us out of bondage into a place of extreme abundance and blessedness. And Lord, you have plans to make us the bride of Christ, to make us your eternal dwelling place. These things are mind-blowing. It's almost impossible for us to comprehend these things, that you would take sinners, slaves of sin, and bring us out to a place where you're beginning to form us together to be your temple, your holy dwelling place. God, help us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, help us to be led by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, keep step with the Spirit. God, I pray for the whole body of Christ worldwide, that in these last days, as the world is reeling with such confusion, that you would unite us, that with one Spirit, with one mind, with one voice, we could begin to move as a mighty force throughout the land. Thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Fill each and every one of us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit, that we would experience your power. We would flow and move in the gifts of your Holy Spirit, and that together we can become what you've called us to be, a holy habitation for the Lord. God bless each and every one. Keep us under your precious blood as the apple of your eye until you return in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.